Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. My guest in this episode is Brian Orr. Brian is an investor and brand strategist. He used to DJ and performed in more than 12 countries around the world. He excelled not because of his technical skill, but because of his branding, positioning, and relationship management. We dive into his past as a DJ, then move on to branding and positioning. If you've ever been curious about the life of a DJ or about building a successful brand, I think you'll love this interview. And with that, let's welcome Brian. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Artie, how are you doing, buddy? Good. I'm doing well. Thank you. So to start off, let's walk through your journey a bit. So you were a DJ and you got really good at branding, but that's just a brief summary, like very, very brief. So why don't you walk us through your journey? Oh, man, like the whole thing. So, <laughs> yeah, like, so how'd you get into DJing and what got you interested in it? And sure, we can yeah. start there. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm uh, I'm 45 now. So when I say the whole thing, like there's a there's a bit of a yeah. journey in the, through, through those years. Uh, yeah. With regards to DJing. So it, it intrigued me when I was young. Uh, my older sister was a dancer, like a ballet tap like all of that sort of thing and she and her friends would always be in the house like dancing to the radio i grew up in brooklyn new york so there were djs on the radio and what i found fascinating was the idea like i was never wanted to be a dancer i never wanted to be out on the on the floor but i love the idea of them dancing and i love the idea of the dj being able to kind of control or manipulate in a in a good way and create that feeling that brought joy to people in that way that they could be out there dancing and celebrating and having fun. So as I started to notice that and notice that that was happening, I, I just started diving into my family's record collection and just picking out everything that I thought that that was cool and using the standard, like old record players that were, that was on the stacked stereo. Uh, This is, man, this is like early nineties, right? So from there, I, I ended up moving down to North Carolina to finish high school. And my, uh, I got linked up with a guy there who, who is like probably still to this day the best DJ that I've, that I've ever seen. And he was like a turntable guy, like a skills guy. Like he did all sorts of tricks and upside down stuff and sideways stuff and pulled out a rabbit out of a hat kind of thing. And... I was like, man, can you teach me? Like, I want to learn how to DJ. And he's like, well, you can, you can come over and watch. And that was, that was it. So I basically would go like to his house after school and just watch him practice. And, and he would just be making mixtapes and doing all the sort of stuff that you were doing in the nineties. And he never let me touch any of the stuff. Hmm. This is like old school mentorship, kind of like you're not ready yet. And so I went to to the pawn shop and I bought my own record players and, and I bought my own, you know, I had a few records already that I stole from my family. Um, and well, knowingly they, they, they let me have it. And yeah. then I started record shopping and doing all of this. And, you know, of course I was practicing on my own. And then when he would leave the, his studio room, I would jump on and try to, cause his, his equipment was much better than my equipment. So, you know, I got like whatever was on the shelf, like at a pawn yeah. shop. So, uh, 
so you know i was like learning how to how to do the fader and learning how to do the tricks and everything and then he he gave me my first sort of break opportunity like the first time you know he let me play in public eventually i mean it was like a year and a half before you know i was just carrying like all i would do i was 15 years old i would carry his records you know to and from the club to and from all the gigs i'd be out till 2 30 in the morning yeah. you know when the clubs closed to just to help him carry his stuff really just paying dues kind of thing and then he kind of gave me my break or well, he actually did give me my break got me started and then i and then i just you know took it from there okay so you were all analog is that you basically learned all analog yeah there was not there was nothing digital i mean like some of the the four tracks and stuff that we recorded our tapes on you know that was like i guess semi-digital it had it had a memory card in it um i guess i don't know if that is even considered digital no like yeah it was all analog so the guy that taught you you said he's the best dj to this day that you've ever um uh, seen um does he have an online presence or anything that people could look him up and hear? What well, his name is his name is Tommy Tom. Tommy Tom. And he's out of uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And I don't know, honestly, I lost touch with him, you know, through the years. And I don't know that he ever really broke out of the Charlotte market. And you know, I think a lot of that has to do with his style. I, and I don't know. I'm I, honestly, I'm I can speculate. It's one hundred percent speculation. But the the market desire for the turntable DJ is not as strong as the market desire for the um, for the dance floor kind of DJ. So okay. if if there was anything that that restricted him in any way besides potentially personal choice, I have no idea. Um, but he was so he was so good, and I mean he was a dance floor DJ too. But like, I never paid any attention to that. I just paid attention to the tricks, yeah. which I can never do, by the way. <laughs> All right. Um, so one thing, not everyone is familiar with what DJing is. And when I was thinking about this interview, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this uh, clip. You can find it on Instagram, things like that. Of like, it, It's uh, somebody saying, what does a DJ actually do? But it's a DJ edited it and then it gets higher pitch and then, you know, it, it drops into uh, satisfaction. Uh, the song satisfaction. So what does a DJ actually do? So from my perspective, it was always to create the sound, the audio experience and the, 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 the presence to kind of help people enjoy or, or to help people achieve whatever feeling they're, they want to achieve by listening to that set or that, that music, right. Or going yeah. to that place. So I have, uh, you know, that, um, always kind of live by that, uh, some dance to remember, some dance to forget, you know, and, and you have to feel that when you're on stage, because it's not always just, I mean, it's party, 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 but, but really like one of the things that I think was unique about the way that I approached my sets was I was always scouring the crowd and like, you know, constantly moving this roller coaster up and down so that you could appeal to, you know, a variety of different people in the room from, from genre to mood, um, you know, to whatever, whatever it is. So for me personally, that's what I feel like is really the power of the DJ to be able to, 
to provide that audio experience so that the listener can achieve whatever state of being that they're, you know, out there to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, can you dive into what you mean, what that uh, phrase you mentioned means, uh, some dance to remember, some dance to forget? Can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah. So that's a lyric from Hotel California and it's an old Eagle song. Oh yeah. And yeah. Yeah, so that so um, it just in in the song they're just talking about this you know this place and and the people that come there and the type of experience that they're trying to have and it's just this one line that always resonated with me because dancing was really the thing that got me into DJing so that line just always resonated with me that that idea that I'm not even now this this wasn't always because I've I've had a bunch of ego slips through the years but yeah. in general my success came when I was focused on the idea that, that I'm there to serve the people that are in the room. Like I'm the, I'm here as a tool for them to experience whatever it is that they want to. So that, that, that line always just stuck with me. Yeah. So you're paying attention to why the people are actually there listening to the music, right? So some are there to remember what's going on. Some are there to forget something else that's going on. That's basically exactly. what it means, right? Exactly. You could be having a good time. You know, you could you could be celebrating an anniversary. You could be celebrating an engagement. You could be celebrating a birthday. And right next to you is somebody who just got a divorce or somebody who's out, you know, because their 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 spouse left them or because their parent passed away. And and they're in the same room, you know, like it's 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 an interesting dynamic when you really try to think about who's in that room and why they're there. And you know, then being able to kind of curate that journey that could appeal to, you know, the most amount of people for the most amount of time. Yeah. Um, with that, so some people probably judge a DJ based on different things. Some like another DJ might judge a DJ based on technical mixing skill, like how well they transition from song to song. How much does that matter versus your song selection and the atmosphere that you're actually creating? Like, does a crowd ignore the technical transitions and focus more on what you're playing? Well, let's see. If, if you're seamlessly transitioning and flawlessly mixing, which when you're doing it live, even no matter how good you are, still it's still challenging. Yeah. But when you're flawlessly mixing... Nobody knows and nobody cares. But if you're train wrecking and like you're slamming songs and, you know, needles are skipping or whatever, um, people notice that. So yeah. they notice the bad side of that. They don't necessarily notice the good side of that. Um, what was the second part of your question? Was it? Do people focus more on side? Your, Oh, the song yeah. selection. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for me, it was always the song selection. Yeah, because I was never, and I never pretended to be. From when I was watching with Tommy, I was like, I'm never gonna be that hand skill guy. Like, I'm never gonna, gonna. I'll make sure that I'm technically sound, but I'm never gonna be able to like pull tricks and do showcases of how good I can manage the turntables and the mixer. Like, you know, Jazzy Jeff and these guys like AM. Like, I was never that guy. I knew where my role was going to be early on. Yeah. And, and for me, it was about, you know, the, the experience. So the first thing I had to make sure was that I wasn't going to train wreck. 
right? So, you know, when I say that, I mean, like, not mi mixing songs where, that don't sound good together, you yeah. know, that, that are either smashing together, the beats are off, you know, the sounds are off, the volume's off, a lot of different things can happen. Um, so with that, I, I basically learned how, how best to not train wreck, right? Avoid the big mistake and then start figuring out that strategy of, you know, how to present the best type of, the best type of experience, which is, which comes from that point on exclusively song selection, I think. Uh, so you, you, you knew from the get-go that you wouldn't be as technically talented as other DJs, but you wanted to pursue it anyway, and you had success. How important is it for people to pursue what they want to do despite maybe knowing that they're not going to be at the top? From a general kind of guideline. Now, I wouldn't just say, hey, if you're going to suck at something terribly, keep at it. Yeah. You know, like I'm not, I don't necessarily believe that. But if you are going to pursue something, if, if that, if your mind has, is made up to that point, you are going to pursue it, then I think designing the best strategy based on your strengths to carve out your lane and your positioning is the best, the next best step. So find out where you can live within that category or industry or profession and, and, and then exploit that, you know, exploit your strengths to, to create your positioning there. Yeah. And that, and that, that is probably my best advice for, for success in there. Okay. So you, you started developing the skills to, you know, not have bad transitions and you were getting good at your song selection. Can you dive into some of the struggles that you maybe faced and then how you started seeing some success? Yeah, most of the struggles. So if if we're rewinding all the way back, where I started in the mid nineties. Yeah. And there were obvious struggles that don't exist today, like the ability to reach millions of people instantaneously through a, a viral social post, let's say. Right. Yeah. That that didn't exist. There was no social media. There was barely, there was like a computer lab in my college right? Like there was yeah. one for each dorm or, or one for every two or three dorms, something like that. There's a, we're talking about a very different world of, of how to reach audiences and so on. So relative to today's world, it's kind of dated, right? But, it, but still there, even though social exists, there's still fierce competition through social. So, you know, a big problem was, was reaching people um, to kind of get, get my message out, like what I was you know, what I was out there to do. The other challenges came from indecision. Like, so DJing is very, is one part of my story that's carried from when I was a teenager till today, but there's a, a, a multitude of other aspects, right. That, that, that we can potentially talk about. Yeah. So there was the indecision with, you know, when am I going to stop DJing? Like when I graduate college, do I have to give up this kid's game? You know, and I retired once and I retired again. And I think I retired three times. I don't, I don't know exactly okay. how many times I retired, but potentially three, I think it was three times. Um, so, you know, there's, there was the indecision, like, is this the thing that I should be doing at 20, at 25, at 30, at 35, right? And then I'm like, well, I guess if they're still paying me, 
I'll, I'll probably keep doing it. You know, I had those thoughts a couple of times and it, things brought me back. So there was indecision with, is this the right path? There was also obvious, some, you know, the obvious party lifestyle, right? That takes a toll on you. Yeah. I, I did have some success where I was traveling a lot. You know, the simply traveling takes a toll on you. Airport, hotel, club, after party, airport. Yeah. Right? That went on for a while. And that become you know, that that's very difficult to deal with. So, you know, there were a lot of different challenges. I mean, relationships. You know, it's super hard. It was super hard yeah. for years to to one, keep myself where I'm like, you know, I'll just have this one standing relationship. Or two, to even then then find a girl who was okay with me, you know, being gone for days at a time and so on, you know. So the relationships was a problem. There was a lot of different issues through the years. And with regards to overcoming them, I mean, you know, each challenge presents its own opportunity for knowledge and growth. And sometimes it, there was external influences. Sometimes it was internal reflection. But, uh, you know, more often than not, it was so, at some point, like, facing whatever challenge I had, meaning, like, recognizing it and saying, okay, is, is this the best for me? Am I continuing on the, on the right path? Should I pivot? Should I go this way? Should I do that? How do I make this change? How do I make this better? Yeah. And that's where, you know, like I said, external influences, you, you seek external support or, you know, through meditation or prayer or whatever, you know, whatever you choose to do um, internally. And then you, and then you just kind of, you know, keep trying to conquer whatever it is that challenges or demons or whatever you're facing. Yeah. What, what genres did you play? Like what, what type of music did you DJ? Did that change over time? And what were the atmospheres that you were DJing and did that change? Like, were you DJing at clubs, raves, bars? Where were you generally playing at? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I started as a hip hop DJ because one, I'm from Brooklyn uh, and hip hop was in our blood. I, I was also a fan of a lot of different music growing up, like the records that I was stealing from my family, whereas was, you know, rock and roll, Beatles records, Motown records, a lot of different genres. So I, I was I grew up in an, in an area, freestyle records, house music. You know, uh, I grew up in an area that was multicultural, yeah. which had a variety of influences. But as a kid, like the kids' music was hip hop, right? So, and some some pop and top forty and that kind of stuff too back then. Tommy was a hip hop DJ. He was exclusively a hip hop DJ. So I learned everything that I learned through hip hop. So my my as I got through high school and into college, I started. My base was predominantly hip hop. Because, you know, college kids, that was our time. That was what we were listening to. And I was in North Carolina. I went to college in North Carolina, too. So it wasn't like I was, I was DJing back in, in Brooklyn or Manhattan, where people did have that multi 
sort of cultural experience and, and they were they were more open to hearing things once you go back to New York, right? This is the nineties in, in North Carolina. But what I did start doing back then was integrating a lot of my style music into my sets. So I was playing, you know, vinyl sets, um, and I was playing like like biggie, you know, singles, right? And but then I would throw in like a Motown 45 and then I would play ACDC like on an LP and I would drop like, you know, a Thunderstruck or whatever off off uh, off the LP. So right away, I started getting a little bit of attention. There was like a lot of love and hate people. A lot of people hated what I was doing. Yeah, a lot. Um, but but, you know, a good amount of people started really digging what I was doing. and. This could have existed. I'm certainly not the creator of open format by any by any means whatsoever. But it, this era, I think, was the creation era of open format, where people started mixing a lot of different styles and genres into uh, your, your normal kind of bar and club scene. Yeah. So, so I started there, and I started bars, and I st- and and then clubs and. Uh, you know, I had a very short stint doing a few weddings and, and communions and that kind of thing, which I was I had no interest in doing. Yeah. And really uh what started getting me the biggest push was when I started doing more brand events. Okay. And and that's kind of what got you know, that's what started getting me more press and and different media and a lot of the success, the bigger success came from that. By brand events, you mean something like, let's say, Budweiser's putting on an event, they need a DJ for it, they find you, and you DJ at something like that? Yeah, exactly. So if, uh, to use that company, so if we're using Budweiser, Budweiser would be launching a new product line, and they would you know, rent out a hangar in the city in Manhattan, and they would host an event and a, you know some red carpet thing, and they would have some celebrities and you know, all that kind of thing. So I would do those events. Mm-hmm. I also did um, curation for events similar that didn't have necessarily a live DJ, but they wanted programming. So we would do like even playlists, like before there wasn't Spotify or anything like that. It was like burning a CD or, yeah. you know, so so we would do, um, at that. I say we, I mean like DJs in, in that era, in, in those years, um, but me specifically was doing like curation for uh, events like museums, you know, different things affiliated like major brand affiliations and then programming music for like store for retail stores, you know, things like that. Okay. So you said a lot of people hated what you were doing and a lot of people loved it. How do you focus on the people or how do you know when to not listen to the people that are giving you negative feedback? How do you know when to tune that out and focus on the other direction? It's not, I always listen to negative feedback. Negative feedback to me is, is that some of that external influence that, that helps me line up in the right direction. So a perfect example, one of the things that I realized um, from some of that external feedback was I would, I was quick mixing for, for the capability that you could do on vinyl. So let me, let me bring this to your, to your audience. So you can let the whole song play. You can 
play fragments of the song. You can play a shorter clip, a longer clip. It's way easier to do now on digital because everything's just at a touch of a button. You can skip to any point in the song instantaneously. Vinyl was a little tougher to do. Yeah. But what I what I I didn't like hearing the whole song. You know, you I the way I see it, it could be your favorite song in the whole world. And you might not have heard it for 10 years. But by the time you get to the third verse, you're like, all right, you know, I, I get it. I remember, like, yeah. you know, so if I'm trying to create a, a, an atmosphere of dancing and energy and some kind of vibe, you know, I never wanted to play the song all the way through. So I would select which part of the song I wanted it to either enter on or end on. And so we would mix quicker and called quick mixing. So when I was quick mixing and mixing genres, a lot of times that that smooth flow became more of an obstruction. They didn't quite get that I was going from, you know, from Eminem to Joan Jett, right? Like they, yeah. it didn't, they, it wasn't landing the right way. So it was the negative feedback, like real time feedback. Cause that's the thing about being on the stage, right? Like yeah. they'll looking right at you and they'll tell you people have no, no shyness and telling you that they didn't like that last mix. So it was that real-time feedback. And of course, I, I, you know, I'd speak to my friends after, like, hey, what'd you guys think about it? And it was the, the things that I was doing wrong that helped me really define or refine what I was doing to make it more successful in the long run. Okay. Um, with that, it, what comes to my mind, I've been to some raves like EDC and... Um, I've been to some sets where it's like drop after drop after drop. Like there's no, I'm, I'm sure like you understand this very well, but there was no like up and down. Like you need a, you need a break from like the upbeat, not upbeat, but you need a break from drops for a second to like get ready for a drop. Right. Like it's like when you're producing a song, you don't, it's not just a drop for the whole song. You have your ups and your downs and, your buildups and stuff like that. So, um, that, that's what kind of comes to my mind is the quick transitions. Is that kind of what's going on there is like, you're kind of staying in the higher moments of the song and transitioning at those moments. So, um, in every case it would be different. Okay. Okay. So there are some times where I'm only playing an hour set. If I'm headlining and I'm only playing an hour set, I'm not going to give you too much time to breathe. But in the way that I will give you time to breathe is that while quick mixing, I'll still move from, let's say, up tempo to down tempo or or something that's heavy bass to something that's maybe more vocal, right? So there... It's it's energy, but it's not even sustained for that hour, right? Yeah. Like there has to still be movement in there. Yeah. Um, when you're doing a longer set, there's much more movement. So the quick mixing doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily defined as energy to energy to energy to energy as much as it is, you know, this piece of the puzzle plus then this piece of the puzzle. Plus, then, you know, this piece of the puzzle and how the, the it wholly integrates to become the, you know, whatever journey we're feeling like creating that night. Okay. 
So can you dive into a little bit about where you started seeing a lot of success? Where were you playing at? Um, what were some of the coolest places you've played at? I, I know you went all over Europe um, and North America too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where else have you played a lot? Yeah, pretty much it. Um, you know, I've played in, I think, 12 or 13 countries, probably a hundred and 150 cities. I don't know what, what the total is, something like that. The When people ask me the coolest place I've played, I, there's sort of two different ways of looking at it. The One of my favorite places was in Mexico. And I want to say it was... I want to say it was the city. Now I can't even remember what the name of it was. But so like I'm set up on this way upper tier stage and the whole thing, it's like an arena. So it's like the ring in the middle and then a a ring outside, ring outside, ring outside. So you're kind of looking down over this stadium like atmosphere. And and you know what was it was like spring break in cancun right so there's massive amounts of extra right people swinging from the ceilings and fire and and this and that and everything so that whole experience was just so incredible for me um you know just kind of thinking back to you know sitting on the bench in in tommy's house and like just learning how to how to mix two records together and then standing up there looking out at everybody and and thinking about my sister who by the way was there my mm, older sister was nice. was there at at that event so thinking about that time like i had so much reflection happening while i was playing that it it's so memorable for me except i can't remember which club it was i think it was i think it was the city or bulldog maybe i i don't know i played a couple different places in in cancun i'll, I'll look it back if you want to put it specifically. Um, But I had so many different moments in there, like thinking back to watching my sister and her friends dance in the bedrooms. And then like, literally she's dancing right here and at the club and I'm playing for the whole stadium. Well, you know, so that's probably, that was probably the greatest experience that I had from being on stage. Yeah. The, the, I would say if you ans- if you asked in the way of like the coolest place that I've played for me it's, it's Switzerland because um I've been to Switzerland so many times and most of that has to do with relationship stuff hmm. and and the people in Switzerland are just so freaking cool man they're like I one of the first it might have been the first time I was there I was I was there maybe the second time, I don't remember, but I was there on the week of my birthday. So it was just a bunch of people. Maybe it was the first time. Yeah. Cause a bunch of people I didn't know, like I was just there and I was there for like three or four days. Cause I was doing a couple different events and all these people from like the restaurants or whatever. And then like the, the, the nightclubs kind of got together and took me out to dinner and had like a, a whole birthday thing for me, like a bunch of complete strangers no. that I just barely knew. And they're like, well, we're not going to let you have your birthday alone in a hotel. And I was like, oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, you know, so awesome. I, I really felt like at home with the people there. And, I, you know, they just felt like really, really good people. So, so that experience 
it was something that was not directly related to DJing, but it was brought to my life through DJing. And, and that, and that's definitely top notch. Okay. Did you have any particularly bad experiences that you learned from while on the road? I mean, most of the bad experiences come from the DJ lifestyle. Mm. So, gotcha. you know, mistakes are made and mistakes are made mo like during the set sometimes like things <laughs> things and you're like you know af afterwards when you're doing your reflection and you're like oh yeah all right yeah. so you know um yeah there's just the mistakes happen you know there's a lot of there's a lot of ups and downs and uh you know like i i i missed a big event once or twice I missed a big event once because, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't make it back to the, to the plane on time to get to the next city. Uh, I missed an event once, which ended up being the day that I met my wife. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that, that's the thing, you know, like I missed, you never know, you, you never know, even the mistakes end up. And that, even though that wasn't my mistake, it was like a mistake, something that happened like a bump in the road. But I ended up meeting my wife that day in the city that I didn't leave. So, uh, it was crazy. Is the industry unforgiving or is it fairly forgiving with stuff like that? So if you miss a show, um, is there somebody, I mean, I guess it would probably depend, depend on like whose event it is and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, but in general, is the industry somewhat forgiving? Of from what I've gathered, I, I believe so. You know, everyone understands that things happen. And the truth is, is even if you're, you know, the headline of all headlines, like there could still be a delay at the airport and there could still yeah. be snow and there could still be some. So that you, there's things that are out of your control. I mean, you have it in your contract, like, you know, if acts of God or things beyond your control, it's in the contract. So while uh, they're more forgiving for things like that. They're less forgiving for guys that, you know, get drunk in the booth or, yeah. or, you know, in the kicking over, I don't know, their, their decks onto the stage or something like, you know, less forgiving for things like that. Yeah. Um, but still forgiving in the sense that we all kind of understand, like, well, you know, sometimes that happens, Yeah. you know, not that I've ever done it. Yeah. Just saying. Um, what does that feel like when I I've been in a big crowd at Ray's and a DJ is playing something and it's just an amazing time. How does that feel as the DJ? Like all focus is on you. Like everyone is listening to the music that you're playing. Like I'd imagine that is just an incredible feeling. I'll tell you what, man. Uh, I, it's only been a few times that I've, that I've been able to even enjoy it mm. because I get so nervous. Yeah. And especially when we were still on vinyl, because like any little thing jumps the record, right? Like going to digital, it became less stressful, but still it's stressful in that, you know, you, you, you someone can hit a key on your keyboard and things change. I had a, I had a girl knock my, knock my laptop right off the stage, uh, you know, in Philadelphia one time, like at the, in the middle of this massive yeah. party, 
and you know hundreds or i don't know how many people thousand people in this place and uh and she was dancing and reached back and kind of elbowed like this the laptop went over the side and this was even when we when we were using external hard drives which so was just early before we even like the, the the laptops didn't have the internal capacity to hold the music yeah. so we had external drives so then the computer fell the drive so like um there's been there's not been many times unfortunately looking back that i did have those moments like i did in mexico to kind of like bask and in, in the moment and enjoy it because you really it, it's more of a pressure thing like you're realizing you have to continue this and you're mixing songs and if you're quick mixing you're mixing in a minute right yeah and if you're you know sometimes shorter and if it, even if you're letting songs play like as a house dj you're you know doing a little bit more of a of a manipulation of a longer track it's still like every single thing that you do is going to affect hundreds of people instantaneously yeah so it i i it was always pressure man what was it what was different about cancun that allowed you to enjoy it more so i it was just and 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 it wasn't even the whole night. It was literally just those couple of minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, because of it was it was just the, the the ability that I had, or I don't know if it was even like subconsciously, but the but the the awareness that I had of the the vision, the idea of being back in Tommy's house, and then also being back in in my house with my sister because my sister was there yeah so i think that dynamic you know just allowed my subconscious to kind of take over for a minute and be like man you know take a breath like take this in it's, it'll be okay like let the song play for two minutes you know use use one of those minutes to just to just enjoy it and then kind of get back to work yeah would you generally have your sets planned out for the most part or was it fairly spontaneous and and you're deciding in the moment what you're going to be playing. I would say it was about 95 to 99% in the moment. Okay. Uh, but what I did do and what I what I what I did that I'm sure every people do it now. Well, it's a little different now. So let me let me kind of explain a little bit what it was like before the internet right like yeah. like you know and it, and even as even as the internet existed well people were learning how to how to leverage it so i i'm a big fan of preparation i'm a big fan of doing homework as an athlete i was you know watching film like knowing what to expect from the other team knowing what i need to do and what i did wrong so that i can do better preparation with regards to music, that preparation was finding out as much about the local market as I could before I went there. So nowadays, I, I would venture to say you'd be safe if you played the same exact set in New York, Miami, Omaha, Nebraska, Dubai, yeah. Ibiza, and Shanghai, right? Like more or less you can probably get away with playing the same set. 20 years ago and more, 25, 30, you couldn't do that. 
like like I described when I first started, you know, the open format kind of mixing in North Carolina, they weren't having it, you know, um, they got used to it. Like the people that would come see me every week would start starting to get used to it. But like when I had, if I had a New York DJ come down, I'm like, Hey, play at this spot. I'm like, but listen, you can't do the New York thing. Yeah. You can bring your New York style, but you have to do different things. You have to know what's happening here. So you have to, you know, I, I would go on, uh, whatever, whatever radio station, I would find the local radio stations and, and pull the top 10. And this is, this is by city and also by country. Yeah. So I would, I would be able to jump on like as, as the, as the internet happened before that, I would talk to the promoter. Hey, give me like three or four local songs that are super bangers that, that, you know, I could play. And they were like, what, you want to play local songs? I'm like, yeah, I want to play local songs. So what would happen is, like I would get there and if there wasn't, if I didn't have access to it, right, there wasn't the digital thing yet. I would say, all right, give me, give me those records and, and I'm going to play them. But I would just play them just then, like only knowing that I trusted that they said that they were bangers, but they're in, they're in German, they're in Spanish, right? Yeah. I don't know. I didn't know that. So to get back to the idea of, of was it pre-programmed? There was programming involved in the preparation that I did, in that making sure that I could deliver a hometown sort of hero blast within my set. That was something that I always made sure that I did. If I went to Chicago, I was playing like, like a classic Chicago house track or a local Chicago hip hop artist or something mixed within the set. So I was still doing what I was doing, but then, you know, and they knew that I wasn't from there, but then that touch of home, they'd be like, Oh, and you'd get like this crazy reaction yeah. when I'm in, when I'm in, in, in Switzerland and I, and I'm in playing a, and, and they hype, you know, New York DJ. Blah, blah. And then I drop like some, some banger, you know, German track. And they're like, what? Like you get this whole kind of crazy reaction that they would never expect that I was going to play that. Yeah. Um, so, so I always prepared myself for what I was getting into, but I never did like the, here's the 50 songs I'm going to play and I'm going to play them in this order and I'm going to mix from here to here and then here to here. And there was never any of that, um, sort of thing. Okay. When it comes to, I'm, I'm a bit of an audiophile. So if I go to a show and the sound is horrible, like it, kind of ruins the experience from from a performer standpoint how do you kind of handle that like what if you get to a or, or do you scope out places that you're going to play beforehand and are you picky with that or do you go to play at a venue and the sound kind of sucks and you just have to go with it i have no idea about sound okay um you know i have a very very basic fundamental understanding of sound from like the audiophile perspective, right? Okay. Um, I would just kind of leave it up to the place that I was going. It, it certainly had no bearing on any of my decisions on wh where or when I was playing. Um, it, it was just really not a non-factor. Okay. How do you stay organized as a DJ? Like I've looked into digital DJing a little bit and 
I find the organization aspect extremely like overwhelming. And I know there's like, I think it's, they're called libraries, like mm-hmm. DJ libraries now where you can pay a subscription and you have access to uh, music and, mm-hmm. you know, s- somebody's library to DJ. But especially 20 years ago, how did you handle organization? I, especially when you're dealing with records, how do you know? I mean, you have one minute to choose the next song. How do you yeah. stay organized enough that you can do that? So nowadays with the digital stuff, it's easier because you can orchestrate, like you can set up your folder just like you organize any of your files, right? Yeah. So you can say, um, I mean, there's guys that do it so meticulously. I'm not that guy. I, I am very, I don't want to say, excuse me, I don't want to say I'm very haphazard, but it's not really organized much. The way that I organize my music is by the venue that I'm playing. So if I was playing in, like when I'm doing my preparation, right? If I'm playing and and I'm doing this house club, I know it's it's like 90% house or 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 at least it's 100% house, but that's not what I'm going to play because I'm going to do something different. But if it's 100% house, let's say, then then I would prepare, I don't know, I would start, listen, I would start down the road of being like, I'm going to play these 15 songs. I would do that often, except that 15 song turned into 150 songs. So by the time I I actually got on stage, there was 150 or 200 songs out of like when I'm only playing 10 or whatever, right? Um, Yeah. So I would kind of build a library and say, I think this would be good there. And then I would actually play the event. And the event playlist versus what I thought I was going to play there is usually very different. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll create that playlist and then I'll say, and then I'll put like space live, right? So if it was, you know, whatever nightclub, like smash nightclub, right? It would be like smash folder and that's the stuff that i thought i was going to play there and then smash live which is the, the set that i actually played there and then yeah. when i'm playing somewhere similar at some point in the future i reference back that preparation and say oh man when i was going to play that one place this is what i was going to play so let me let me kind of putz through this one. Oh no but then i ended up actually playing this so so now that i realize the crowd is more because that's what happens like you'll get to a place and then you realize the crowd is not what you expected, or they're not feeling this certain thing, what you anticipated, or they're expecting more from you because you're coming from another city or another country. So then once you once you start realizing that, it's like, wait a second, this crowd now feels a lot more to me like this other place. Mm. So let me go into that folder and yeah. see what I played there and then kind of bring that into the night. Now, with regards to records, man, it was so long ago, but... I don't think I had much organization there either. Hmm. Like you, you were limited because, you know, you can't take 10,000 songs to the, to the club like you can now on your laptop. So you had to pre-select a certain amount of songs. Now it could be hundreds and hundreds of songs, right? But if, if anybody who knows um, vinyl knows that like most of the songs you played were pressed as singles. So it had one song on one side and that had to do with like the grooves and how the needle tracked it and whatnot. And then, and then like a B side. And that's what, you know, if you hear things like B side, that's what that is. It's the second single 
like here's a major single, which is on the A side. And then they're like, hey, we want to also let you know that we have this song and that's the B side record. Yeah. So you, for the most part, the records that I was playing was one song on one record, right? And then as a as a turntable, like I did do some some scratching, some, you know, uh, some little stunt work, you would buy two of every song. So you can have one on this side and one on this side. So in one sleeve, there was two records, and but they were the same song and it was heavy. Yeah. So, you know, you would only be able to take so much out. So with that, I would I would kind of try to do the same thing. Like, what do I think I'm going to play? And then what might I play if things go a different direction? And then those crates sort of started getting themselves built out in the same way that I currently do it with the digital system. When it was like, you know what? I, I've brought this record out seven times and I haven't played it yet. I'm going to take this one out. I'll put it somewhere else and I'll put something else in its place. Yeah. And, it, and, and, and that was really the, all the organization that I had. So I am certainly not the one. If you're looking for how to organize, yeah. I'm definitely not the one. You you mentioned them being heavy. Like I'd imagine vinyl records probably weigh like ten records together is probably somewhere around a pound. Um, I could be off on that. That's just a guess, but um, maybe give or take five records from that equals a pound so like are you literally just traveling with like a suitcase full of vinyl records to some shows well they were milk crates okay so it was like milk crates or post office crates um i don't know if you've ever seen those those like clear plastic sort of rectangle things that they ca carry mail in yeah that so you would use post office crates or you would use milk crates and you would just line those up end to end. Then eventually uh, I found like the flight cases where they have, you know, what, what you notice now is like the road cases that people tour with. And I'm sure they had it before I was DJing. I just didn't know. Like at some point I discovered it. But um, I originally everything was in milk crates. And like when I was working with Tommy, it was all it was all milk crates and postal crates. So it was just literally hoisting it up, carrying it out to the car sticking it in there. And as many as we could fit, we would fit them, we would line them up their rectangle. So in the backseat of the car and we'd line up, you know, five across or whatever it is, yeah. come to the club. There was a, there was a table or something behind you here. And then you just line them up in the back there. And, um, and I don't, I couldn't guess what, what the, what the weight was, meaning yeah. like how many records, are, but it was, uh, but it was heavy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, use hand trucks, right? Use hand trucks whenever you could. And then, you know, if you were doing a, 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 a you know, the further you were traveling, the less records you would be able to bring. Yeah. Um, the flight cases made it easier because they closed, you know, you could, you could put them in a, in a, in a cargo area, you know, ship, um, uh, on a plane or whatever, right? Like you could check them. Yeah. Um, because they seal, they have the latches and whatnot, but, uh, yeah, you wouldn't travel with milk, <laughs> with milk crates yeah. unless you were driving somewhere. But yeah, then that, that did, it limited the selection that you could bring. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it's a very different landscape now, right? Cause you can have a hard drive that can have 
tens of thousands of songs mm-hmm. and no matter how many songs you put on there, it's the same weight. So yeah, and, exactly. and you're talking like less than a pound for most hard drives now. So, and if you use like in-ear headphones, I mean, there's people, they don't even show up with anything except what's in their pockets. Like a couple of flash drives, the in-ear headphones, yeah. and they're just walking in like, Hey, I'm here. Yeah. That's pretty uh, wild how different it is. Um, where did branding come in with your DJing? Like, were you good at branding right away? Did your brand change over time or uh, is it a skill you developed slowly? So recent in recent years, um, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm a little bit older now. So my, my business world has become a lot of uh, investing and consulting. And in my consulting, I sort of uncovered something, I guess, that was subconscious for quite some time, which was the idea of branding and the idea of positioning, which is something that when I reflected on it, that I realized way back in Tommy's house. But I can only say that now in hindsight, because what I was really doing at that time was identifying what my brand was, how I was going to represent myself, and how I wanted to be perceived in the marketplace, and the path that I was going to choose to get there. When people hear branding, um, a lot of times they think of just like the brand, the stamp, the logo which is where branding originally came from. Branding, the term branding in business came from stamping cows. So, you know, the original, like the actual brand, right? The hot brand on the butt. So you knew whose cow it was. And then it evolved through like shipping containers and different things. So, so you can identify and it became a, a, an identity recognition of the host or the owner or the business or whatever. So a lot of people still today believe that branding is just like, the tagline or or the logo, but that's just like the identity portion of it, right? I'll give you an example to to so you can um, kind of understand it. So if you think about like the most famous brand in the world, probably is Nike, or at least it's top five. Everyone in the world can look and see that swish, and they know exactly what that company is. If they hear "Just Do It," for the most part, now I can't speak to the younger generation. I don't know if it's still the same way, but my whole for years and decades, you hear just do it, you know, we're talking about Nike. So people think Nike's brand is the swoosh and the tagline, but I don't believe that that's Nike's brand. What I believe to be Nike's brand is the concept of hero, of victory, of champion, because you buy Nike not to wear the swoosh, you buy Nike because champions wear Nike and you feel like you can be a champion if you also wear Nike. You want to be the hero. You want to take action. You want to just do it. Right? So that's that when, when we're talking about cultivating a brand and defining a brand, what we're really talking about is how people perceive you, what they think about you, what's your, what's your, it's a business version of your reputation. What do they say about you when you leave the room? Why are they investing their time, energy, effort, money into your product versus someone else's product? What's your differentiation? Why Nike versus Adidas? 
why when you see these two on the shelf, why when you see Nike on the shelf or you see uh, Puma on the shelf or a no-name sneaker brand, they're all sneakers. They're all going to cover your feet. And for the most part, none of them are going to make you fly, right? Like you're not going to be that much faster wearing Nikes than you are wearing a no-name sneaker brand. Yeah. But in your mind, you think that that's the path to becoming a champion or to becoming a hero. And that's what brand is. So when I talk about branding now from a DJ standpoint, it's, it's like I mentioned, it's in hindsight, it's in reflection. I was doing it the whole time, and it, but it came instinctually to me. I didn't realize what I was doing at the time was this term. I'm like, you know, but what I, what I was doing was defining the way that I wanted people to talk about me, defining the way that the reputation that I wanted to have defining the strategy, the path, the positioning that I was going to put in the market to create the opportunity for myself based on my skill set and what I'm bringing to the market, right? I didn't have the turntable skills of Jazzy Jeff. I didn't have the voice of Kid Capri or Red Alert or these famous New York DJs. I didn't have those things, but I did have the, the purpose of, of, helping people through whatever that, you know, bringing joy in some way to people through music. Yeah. I'm not a musician. I don't, I've never learned to play the piano. I don't know how to play guitar. For me, my, my instrument was the turntable and I was able to, to use songs that other people made and, but then bring that to the public in a way that brought joy to them. And that's, that, is the thing like in hindsight establishing my my true brand identity um much more so than my logo i mean i spent hundreds of hours on on logo because that's what i thought brand was too yeah right and ultimately okay. none of that matters all that matters is are you going to be able to present to the potential client or prospect um the type of deliverable you're going to bring to their audience and then when you get there are you going to stand up to that reputation and that that is your brand and that's the thing that when when looking back that that got me all the success that i got when you're saying that you decided how people were going to talk about you how do you do that because a lot of people would probably assume that you don't have much control over that like you have control over, you know, in your case as a DJ, you have control over how your set goes to at least a large degree, but not completely, right? Mm -hmm. um, how do you define how people or decide how people are going to talk to you or right, talk about you? Sorry. Right. So, so you can't ever actually make it happen. Mm -hmm. I can't determine what you think of me. But what I can do is make my best effort to influence you in a way that I would prefer you think about me. So right now we're doing this podcast. Uh, I could have showed up, you know, uh, in a tank top, drinking a beer and, you know, some, I don't know, whatever else, some, something else where instantly you turn on the camera and you say, wait a second, I'm not sure if this is the person I want to be speaking to, to, to. Uh, address my audience. I don't yeah. want to present this person to my audience. So 
While I couldn't necessarily determine what you think when you turn the camera on, I can certainly try to do something like comb my hair, wear a decent shirt, have yeah. have the proper headphones, have the microphone ready, so that way you know I'm bringing value to your audience. I'm not forcing you to a place where where you're going to have to do excess editing after the fact because my sound quality was awful. I mean, you can look. I'm I'm sitting in a soundproof room for yeah. just that reason. Why? Because when we're done with this conversation, at some point, perhaps I'm going to look to you and your audience to say, you know what? We did like listening to that guy. He did present himself pretty well. I'm going to tell some other people that if they want to have a good conversation, they should talk to him yeah. because he's going to show up properly. He's going to use the proper equipment. He's going to bring value to the audience. So while I couldn't necessarily determine your, your interpretation. I could certainly do my best to influence it. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, you said the logo doesn't matter that much. Does your brand name and logo, how, how much does that matter? Like people dwell on this. I mean, I've dwelled on this with this podcast, with, uh, other companies, uh, the other company I have, um, it's something I've thought a lot about how am I just wasting my time or am are, are people wasting their time when they're thinking about the brand name and the logo or is there some importance to it? They're wasting their time. Okay. And I can speak from experience and I can say this in, in hindsight, of course, because I did it. I did it time and time again. What should I call myself? What should I, um, how should my logo be? Should I have my, my, S this way or this way, I have an inverted I, which is an exclamation point, like so many different things that I spent so much time on. And when you, when you look at it, hindsight is way easier to look at it. So when I'm looking at it, I'm like, at any point in my career, was it that stamp that got me any business? Was it that stamp that that created opportunities for me? Was it that stamp that, that encouraged a, 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 um, a promoter to book me again? And the answer to all of that is no. Now, there is a place for logo and there's a place for taglines like we just described with Nike because Nike doesn't have to tell you all the time who they are anymore because they're identified by their swoosh right? You can see it, you know it, but the swoosh is not what made Nike into the company that it is, right? What made Nike into the company that it is are, are the, the intangible kind of factors behind the scenes. The, what is the mission? What are, what are they trying to do, right? What is their, what is their vision? What do they want to be like 10 years from now? 20 years from now. Yeah. Uh, who who are they trying to help? What what type of influence are they trying to bring to the market? All of these things. These are the things that 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 matter. Because I could have had a logo that was and here's a, here's for example, especially when you're talking about starting up, right? And early. You could have a logo made on Fiverr for I don't know, five bucks, right? That's what, that's what it says. Yeah. 
I could have some, I could pay the top designer in the world 20 grand to make a logo, right? Neither one of those things are getting me any business. Yeah. Neither one. One might look fantastic. It's going to be incredible. It's going to look like, you know, and, and you could clearly see that this is a $5 logo and this is a $20,000 logo and neither one of them have anything to do with whether you're getting hired or not. What matters when you're getting hired are all of those types of intangible things. So you can, you can establish your brand and then you start putting it into play through design. And then your design works with, you know, feeds your marketing, right? And now you're putting it out there and then you can be identified by the logo. But what, what they're identifying is who you are, who your company is, or who your personal brand is. And they're identifying what they've learned through, you know, through your copywriting, through your whatever it is that you're putting out there. And then they start to like associate, oh, I've seen this before and I've seen this before, right? Because we are visual in that sense. I've seen this shape before. I've, I, I recognize this pattern. I recognize this name. And now I'm starting to, to put together this profile, this brand persona, this personality profile of what this company is or who this person is and what they represent. And I'm starting to see them, um, you know, sponsoring a local charity event. And I'm starting to see them, you know, over here and over there. And I'm seeing them on multiple platforms and, I'm, and they're constantly showing up or other people are talking, right? And, and, and that's what the identity perspective is. It's, it's the visible thing, but it's just the cue to, for, the, for the user, for the consumer to associate that they've seen you before. And then they tie it into to what you actually are or who you actually are. And that's that that's I, I think the difference. So so the short answer, I do get long-winded, and I appreciate that you have a long podcast yeah, no because it again <laughs> the short answer is if you're if you're building a business and you're trying to establish who you are as a business, your logo and your tagline are probably steps number eight. Nine, ten, or eleven, and you have a lot of work to do. Steps one to seven before you ever worry about. And 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 let's talk about it because honestly, you're saying you spend time to design your logo, as did I. But what are you doing when you're designing your logo? What are you actually doing? What's going on in your head? You're saying, "Who am I? What yeah. message do I want to bring? I have a podcast. Do I want to put a microphone in there so it's identified in my logo?" Do I want to put headphones in there? Do I want to appeal to, you know, 18 to 25-year-olds or do I want to appear to 50 to 70-year-olds? Am I going to send ads out on Facebook or on TikTok, right? All of these things you're figuring out in your own head before you actually sit down to do your logo. So even if you think you're doing your logo first, you're not. You've already predisposed your, your, your psyche to how you want to create your logo. And it's all based on those types of principles, those ideas that are the foundation to, to the design that you want to put forward. Yeah. How do you, and this is something I've gone back and forth with trying to figure out for myself, because I have a, a good idea of what I want to achieve with the podcast, but I, it's hard to put into words. Like um, when you have an idea there's emotion behind it. Emotions are hard to describe with words. So finding 
the words to describe your purpose or your why is is not easy. How do you how do you do that? And does that purpose need to be known and articulated clearly from the beginning? So I don't think anything that you start with is going to be what you end with. So I, I would take a lot of pressure off of if I choose this, this has to be the thing for as long as I want to do this thing. Take all that pressure off right away and say, this is where I'm going to start and let's see what happens. I, I mentioned it when I was when I said I was doing the folders, right? Like, here's where I'm going to start. Here's where I think things might go. But when I get there and I get that feedback, once I test the market, once I test this new club, this new city, and I get that feedback, now I'm going to adjust. Yeah. Right. But how can I adjust? I can't adjust and I can't even create the original idea without my destination, my North Star. Right. So that's what I start with with my clients all the time. It's let's, Simon Sinek has the book, right? Start with why. Yeah. Um, if you haven't read it, read it. it. It'll give you a good understanding, but it's simple enough in the title. Start with why. So if, you, if you're constantly focused on your North Star, on what your ultimate objective is, you don't have to necessarily have the proper terminology to define your purpose, right? But if you have, if you have the idea, for me, it was, I want to make people happy. And I, can, and I found that music was a way to do that. And I found that I had a, a skill that I could hear music in a way that I can control the music and that that was the path to, to do it for me. But even when I was at that club and I showed up with what I thought was going to be it, and then I changed it because I got the feedback. It's all with that same idea of, because I want to make people happy and I want people to enjoy their evening. So if I, if I, if I went in with the idea of I'm doing this because this is what I want to do, well, then I'd never change my set. And I would just be like, here's the 15 songs I want to play. And I'm going to play these 15. And whether you like it or not, I don't care. What kind of success do you think I would have had if, yeah. if that was my, my mindset? And that's why a lot of people fail. And that's why a lot of companies fail and a lot of, and a lot of brands fail because they think that they're they have the product or the service or the thing that everyone is just going to love. And if they don't love, well, there's something's wrong with them. And, you know, I'm going to keep sticking to my, to my, 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 what I do and, you know, whatever. Right. I don't believe in that. I believe in, in establishing your North star, especially if you're service-based, right. It's customer-based, it's client-based. And if your mission as your um, podcast is to bring value to your audience, then as long as that stays your North Star, each episode can be different in a yeah. way that you build on what happened before. You build on the feedback that you get. You build on the one-star reviews and the five-star reviews. And you're constantly iterating so that you can bring value to your audience because that's the only thing that matters. And if, if you deviate from that and bring it central, I've done it. Believe me, I'm speaking from experience where I brought it back in-house and said, I'm the cool, I'm cool. I'm doing this 
look at me. You should like me because look, I just flew here from this city and that makes me cooler than all you guys, right? Like there was, there was a lot of that, that sort of mentality that happened through the years at certain points. And every time that happened, instant failure, instant. And, and the recalibration was realizing like when that reflection, when that reflection time came and I was like, man, that's not, I'm not like, it's only because I'm servicing and I'm doing this for a reason for other people that I'm even here. So what do I need to change about myself, about my set, about my strategy, about my brand that is going to, that is going to realign on the trajectory towards my North star. And that's how, you know, you become comfortable with the idea of pivoting is not necessarily like, you know, I'm committed to this thing and now I have to stay the course or else I'm a quitter or, you know, whatever types of sentiment that you get from that. It's not that it, it, it you're committed to the North star and everything that you do between now and then is just, you know, the, 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 the twists and turns that you got to take to get there. I remember when I was reading Star With Why, there seems to be a a bigger need to define that why when there's more people involved in the company. When you consult, is that kind of the case with you too? Like, do the reasons that does the North Star have to be articulated better when there's more people involved in the company? So when we're talking about brand, we're talking about right how you want to be defined by people who in, who who interpret what you're trying to do right um the the audience the customers the marketplace if you and I worked in the same company and I had a a a brand like my messaging and let's use the logos as an example if my messaging for um for this podcast was a plus sign and you believed your messaging for this podcast was an x well we're both we're both representing this company we're both representing this podcast except i'm stamping plus signs and you're stamping x's and we're hitting the same audience and it's not and they're not getting a plus sign now and they're not getting an x yeah. They're getting a star and that star doesn't make any sense because no one, no one's representing a star. So the idea behind that is if you can get everyone on your team to understand that the plus sign or the X, whichever one, uh, the, the plus sign is your brand, is your mission, is your North star, then no matter who they speak to within the organization, they're going to constantly be getting this same plus sign over and over and over and over again. So in effect, you're expanding your reach um, all focused on that same message. You know, Nike, if not, Nike had a swoosh, but then they also had like something else and something else and something else. You know, I mean, yeah, they have the Jordan thing, but that's technically its own brand. Yeah. Um, you know, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't, uh, Chick-fil-A is a great example for anyone that's in the States. I don't even know if they have Chick-fil-A outside the say, but you know, they, they always say like, uh, pleasure, uh, my pleasures, like their, their, their yeah. tagline after every time you order a Chick-fil-A, it's my pleasure. Well, we know that you just nodded to that. You agreed to that. Cause you probably yeah. eaten a Chick-fil-A maybe once or maybe twice or maybe more. Um, but we understand that my pleasure is what they say. That's their brand. 
if you go to Chick-fil-A and someone says, hey, man, thanks for coming. You'd be like, wait, what? That's yeah. weird. Like, I wasn't expecting that. That's and it's not in a good way. Right. So with regards to corporate kind of alignment, that's 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 that is the why. The why is so that the message stays consistent no matter who within the organization is speaking to whomever and whichever medium they're delivering it through, it stays consistent on message. And that's what the important thing is. I'd imagine when you're dealing with a larger company, you kind of have to be willing to get rid of people that aren't on board with what you're actually trying to achieve then. Because like, if you have, like if Chick-fil-A started hiring people and they weren't saying my pleasure, if they weren't doing what upper management and, and the owners wanted as it relates to customers and those interactions, um, the brand would fall off quite a bit, even if the food stayed the exact same. Yeah. So, um, HR is not really my thing. Um, <laughs> I try to stay away from HR yeah. as much as possible, but theoretically, yes. If, if you have people within the organization who are not representing your brand in, the, I mean, you can, you can, you can make it even simpler. If, Chick-fil-A has a uniform and they want you to wear the uniform to work and you show up in, you know, jeans and a hoodie and something else and slap your name tag on there. It's quite clear that visually you're not representing the brand. Same can be said for audibly. If you're not saying the right things, you're not representing the brand in a way that you were trained to or a contract you signed that you agreed to. So I can certainly see cases where they would either undergo extensive training or potentially be let go if they were not um, conforming to to the plan, to the strategy, to what the brand actually is. Yeah. So if so, if you had a friend come up to you or or somebody just wanting consulting with you, they have maybe an idea of a company they want to start, a product they want to sell, or a service they want to sell. How would you have them start? Like, what would what would you tell them? What would be your advice for just getting started? Getting started from a from a entire business perspective, yeah. or are we talking about branding? I guess more from from branding. But if if you want to give advice on just in general, that'd be great too. Yeah, I mean, so from a business perspective, I mean, there there's so many things you have to line up with legal. Yeah. Uh, with financing, right? Who's who's starting the company? Who's paying for it? What state? I mean, we're in the U.S., so um, but you know, in other countries, whoever's listening, that's the cool thing about you know this could go anywhere, right? Yeah. Um, that's why I love the, the the opportunity like that we live in right now. So whoever's listening, wherever you are, there are uh, municipalities. There, there's government reach where you have to determine you know, what type of entity you want to, you want to start, uh, how you're going to pay taxes. You know, there's so many things that I'm not a CPA, talk to a CPA. I'm not an attorney, talk to an attorney. And there's a lot of those things that you have to establish with regards to how you're going to run the business. But that's something else that people do where they spend so much time on what am I going to call the business? What state am I going to run it in? How do I protect myself from, you know, liability and all this sort of stuff. And I'm just like, 
just just sell something. Like just sell something. Just find someone who wants what you have and sell it. Yeah. And then and then start worrying about it all. Like then start worrying about everything else. What are you sell? Are you selling a service? Are you selling um, you know, home services? Do you have a lawnmower and you, you want to start a landscaping company? Don't worry about your logo. Don't worry about your just knock on a door of somebody with a high lawn and say, Hey, you want me to mow your lawn? I'll do it for 50 bucks. Whatever, right? Yeah. Oh, your current lawn guy does it for 50. I'll do it for 30. And but you know, that's how you start a business. You start a business by selling something to somebody. Yeah. You have a product or you have a service that you're offering. And then then you'll be able to dis- to determine, you know, you find the problem, provide the solution, and then you'll be able to 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 take all the steps necessary with like, oh, who am I helping? Uh, am I a landscaping company? Am I doing uh single family houses in the suburbs? Am I doing, am I trying to get commercial contracts from large apartment buildings? Am I going to 55 and over communities to try to get it? Am I, am I targeting single, you know, single family homes, but, uh, you know, I can do some sort of data scraping and find homes where the owner is 60 and above. Hmm. And I can provide a very specific thing because I know that they can't mow their lawn or they're, or they don't want, you know, they have enough money they don't want to, or they're. They're physically limited because of their age. And now I'm going to design my whole marketing campaign specifically to people 60 and above to, to, to make them aware of the problems that they have in physical labor. And I'm going to be the solution for them. And then I'll say, you know, then I'll design my logo that has like, you know, a young guy or girl like pushing along some, something that speaks to them that says, yeah, you know what? I'd rather it's worth it for me to pay them the 50 bucks and for me to get my own lawnmower. And then you create a whole bunch of content that's like, oh, lawnmowers are expensive. You know the price of gasoline nowadays? Like, do you want to go to the gas station, get gas, come back, fill up your lawnmower? What if the spark plug's not working? Like, are you able to maintain lawn equipment? Like, and you start doing all this problem aware content. And then you're able to, to market them and convince them that you're the solution for their problem. Now you have a business. Now you worry about, you know, your, your logo. It, it could be John's landscaping company. Who cares if you're John and you charge people 50 bucks, you bring it, and then you have a whole year to worry about what you're doing with taxes and all yeah. that. Like, you know, then you, then you consult in, uh, your CPA and then you decide to set up your entity. And then, you know, for, for the most part, for the most part, if what you're trying to do is set up a daycare center. Well, you know, you can't just start bringing a bunch of kids in your house and, and like without a whole bunch of other things that you have to do beforehand, right? State regulations and so on. So yeah, but for the most part, you know, start, start selling something, then you shape your business. With the lawn care example that you brought up, something, a question that comes to my mind is, so you mentioned focusing on 60 and older. Maybe that's what you start marketing toward. What would you just say to somebody who maybe feels like they're worried that their brand would be too specific? Like they're like, I want to be able to cut lawns for everyone, but my marketing right now is targeted toward people 60 or over. Um, but that's not where I want to stay long term. What would be... What would you say to somebody who's worried about that? Like worried about limiting their brand too much with a tactic like that? 
So if the question that we're staging is that the person has already established a business, they're manicuring lawns, they're landscaping, and they're ta- their demographic that they're landscaping is 60 and above. Their marketing is based on that. Their content is based on that. And now they're, they've hit a, a fork in the road or an obstacle that says, I don't want to just do this. I want to do, do landscaping, but I want to expand my client base. That's just, I just want to make sure that we're, that's what we're framing, right? Yeah. Or they're that, or maybe they're looking at the marketing landscape and they're just worried about marketing to that group because they don't want to limit their brand long-term. Should they not even worry about that? Right. So I would ask more questions. I would say, why is the 60 and over demographic becoming unappealing to you? Is there, is there a, a, a lack of population that's that age? Like, have you discovered that you, you at least made points of contact with 100% of the 60 and over community within your five mile radius? or 10, whatever it is. Um, if not, why in the world would you try to build a whole nother silo of, you know, I'm going to market now to young couples who, who have this. That's the kind of thing where I would say, stick in your lane and exhaust that lane. But that's not to say that you can't set up another lane and that next lane perhaps it, it it it's the same core the core is i'm saving you time uh energy you know effort because i'm coming to do this service at your home for you that's the core right yeah that's what the service actually is so if they're if they're initial um there is a initial lead gen and the target market was 60 and over and they've gained this specific market share there and they feel that they've exhausted that market share there. The only thing that they're really doing then is changing their lead gen source because you would have, let's say, whatever, let's say you're running an ad. I'm not a fan of ads, but let's just use it as an example because people understand it or content, whatever. You're running your ad and your ad speaks to the 60-year-old. Hey, you've worked hard your whole life. You have no reason to continue to do this. Like, but your grass is still growing. So, you know, you don't want all the bad things that come from high grass. So I'll come over and I'll do this thing. Well, that's just the very top of the funnel, right? Like that's just the the introduction. That's just the awareness. That's just the first time that they meet you. And then they say, well, why you? And against someone else, like, okay, now that you've made me aware of this problem, or perhaps I knew that, like I, I'm 60 years old. I know that I need my la- my lawn mode, right? Like so, so I know that it's a problem. And now I'm realizing that I don't want to be the one to continue to do it. Why am I choosing you? And then it's because we have the latest equipment, because we have you know such and such, and yeah, whatever it is. But that stays the same. So the only thing you really have to do then is change your top of funnel content or ad, and. Like, let's say you're running a four sequence kind of funnel. Well, those three are going to stay the same. This is, you know, why us, and this is how you reach us, and this is why we guarantee our service. This is 60 and over, right? So all you're replacing is that first one and saying, young couples with kids, you know, you have enough to worry about with your family 
And, you know, it's dangerous if you have the blades running with your kids outside and so-and-so and yada, yada. And now I'm going to take, um, replace that first piece of the funnel. And I'm going to send those ads to TikTok where the first ads I was sending to Facebook and I'm going to send those ads to TikTok and, or Instagram or whatever, where those 25 year olds are. And once they, once they reach here, they're going to get into the part that says, why us? Because we have this, you know, because we have the, the, the latest equipment and so, and then all the sales, right? All yeah. the sales stuff. The only thing you're really changing is the marketing. And, th- and I know that that was a root of your question, but I don't think that that changes who you are as a brand. And I okay. don't think that that changes your sales structure in any way. Um, because all of that is still communicating, we solve this problem for you. And then the marketing part is, who are you solving the problem for? And that could be a variety of things. Now, where I wouldn't necessarily go is, is have this, let's say, residential sort of landscaping business and then start saying, hey, you know, office plazas, like where all where your guy, where your company to do a massive five acre sort of office plazas, right? Like that's a that's a whole different animal. Yeah. than just changing from the 60-year-old to the 25-year-old young couple versus changing um, where the residential, you know, where the answer to your residential problems and then become where the answer to your 300-unit com- complex problems as well. So that that would be a little bit more of a challenge potentially. But, you know, there are people that do residential and commercial and and it, it exists, but it um uh, it could present more of a challenge than just changing that first piece of the marketing. Okay. You said you, you're not a fan of ads. I think that could might surprise people hearing that coming from a branding specialist. Um, why is it that you don't like ads and what do you recommend in replace of them? I think that people spend too much money on outbound cold for not a lot of return on their investment. I think that there's better strategies for you to generate higher returns for lower cost than writing ads. That's as concisely, that's like as, as short as I can possibly put it. That's a soundbite answer. Okay. Um, to elaborate a little bit more, I'm, I'm a big, big, big fan of relationships. Everything that I built in my life has been through relationships. I don't think that I've ever run it. I think I tried Facebook ads once and I spent like five bucks. I said, I'm never doing this again. I've never run an ad and I don't suggest that people run ads yet. At a certain point, yes. And ads, listen, ad strategies work great for a lot of people. My school of thought, I just don't like them and I don't recommend them. Because if you put that same amount of effort, time, money, resources, into relationships, I believe that your returns will be far, far superior than putting that same amount of money into cold ads, especially now. Ads are getting much more expensive. And I mean, listen, my company name is One Happy Client. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it says it right there. I believe that you could build an entire business 
off of having one happy client. And that has everything to do with your relationship and how you treat that client. And that you could potentially build an infinite system of lead generation without doing any outbound, certainly not any cold outbound, without doing any ad spend until a certain point. So for example, what does that mean? Well, if if I have a um if I have a brick and mortar, I have a gym or an ice cream shop, and I'm in and I'm in Tampa, Florida, and I'm opening a new shop in Orlando. I don't know anybody in Orlando. Nobody I know knows anybody in Orlando. I'm breaking into a brand new market. Nobody knows me. I'm gonna run some ads. Dude, I'm just, just gonna do that. For service-based businesses, for locals, whenever you have the opportunity, if you could build through relationships, I believe it's far superior than doing ads top to bottom. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I've run some ads for the podcast, but I kind of look at the way I'm building this is the relationships I build with guests that I have on, their experience, and then you know, listeners over time matters more. Nonetheless, as I said, I still do some ads. So would you say that that's what I should be focusing on if you just took it a look from a podcast perspective? Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. You're spending ads. You're telling people somewhere in the world, as targeted as you can get it, um, and the more targeted, the more expensive it is. But you're telling people somewhere in the world, hey, I am a great host. And I have on awesome guests and you need to listen to my show and I'm going to pay a bunch of money to social profiles or Google or whatever. So that way I can try to attract you to my show. If you were somehow that ad reached you, how likely are you, let's just say on a scale of zero to a hundred, how likely are you to seek out that podcast and start listening to episodes? How likely are you to say, I think that this guy's a great host based on this ad. I think that his content, like his guests are great based on this ad. And I'm going to take my time to tune in and listen to an hour or two hour long show yeah. based on this ad from zero to a hundred. My guess is it, it would be far closer to zero yeah. than to a hundred. Yeah. Right. Let me present another scenario. I'm a guest on your show right now. At the end of this show, you take three, four, five, and I don't know your strategy yet. I'm just, this is what I would, what I would do. The end of your show, you take three, four, five different segments that make me look awesome. As hard as that might be, as much as, as much effort as that might take on your part, you take three, four, five segments that make me look awesome. You splice them up so that they're in, you know, vertical video format. Maybe even you do some horizontal video format for like Facebook posting or for reels or whatever. And you give them to me. You say, here, thanks for being my guest. As, as gratitude, I'm going to give you these five things. I'm going to say, uh, I'm, I'm going to even do a transcript or a summary so that if you ever need it, you know, here, here's the summary of our podcast. Here's my reflection of what, our pod, what, what my audience gained from you being on the show right? And you start giving me all this stuff. What do you think I'm going to do with that stuff? I would imagine you'd share it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because 
you're making me look good. You're bringing me value. Even though I'm on your show trying to bring your audience value, once we're done, you're now bringing me value. You're bringing me, you're giving me content. You're giving me reels. You're giving me text. You're giving me horizontal. You're giving me vertical and all this stuff you can do with a VA, by the way, which is much cheaper than an ad. And now you present this all to me and you say, hey, you know, here it is. Do, do what you like, but do me a favor. If you do post it anywhere, can you just, you know, let people know where, where it came from? Let people know you're on the show and let people know whatever. I have an email list of 3,500 people. What am I going to do in next week's email or when this, when this airs? I'm going to post the thing. I'm going to say, hey, check me out. I was on this show and here's a clip and here's a summary and here's the link to the show and here's the link to, right? So now you're getting direct inbox to 3,500 people. And that's just my email list. I have 15,000 something people on social. Yeah. If I post a couple things on social, you know, where is my organic reach going to get you? And of course, I'm incentivized to do that because you're making me look good. Yeah. Right? So you're solving my problems. You're creating content for me, even though this is like content that we're mutually creating together in the conversation, but but you've made it in a way that that I can now distribute to my audience. You made me look good. How many people, let's just say, let's just say my mother and my sister and my wife, right? Like, let's just say how many of those people of the 3,500 on the newsletter, whatever the open rate is, whatever the engagement is for my organic content, are, are, who know me, who have heard me speak or want to hear more about me speaking, who clients that are interested in what I'm doing, or people who I say, hey, listen, you know what? I told a bunch of old DJ stories on this podcast. I know we don't get to talk about it much, but you know, why don't you check it out if you ever want to listen? Like, here it is, and whenever you feel like listening to it, whatever it is that I do with the content, what do you think that my mother, my sister, my mailing list, my Facebook page, my Instagram page, what is the likelihood of the zero to 100 that those people are going to tune into that podcast? Is it back to zero where the ads are? Oh, it's way higher. Way higher. We're yeah. going much more towards the 100, right? So if you have $100 to spend or $500 to spend, whatever it is that you think you're spending on ads, and you took that same $500 and hired a VA and had them do all of this content for your guests, which one's going to grow your audience? Yeah, the VA. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what the strategy is. The strategy based on relationships, creating value for your customers, your clients, your guests, whoever it is, creating value for them and giving them the opportunity to become advocates for your brand. Because you've provided so much value to them that either it's a sentimental thing, like I feel like I owe you something, or it's a positioning thing. Like I want to show other people that I was on this show and I had some stuff to talk about and we had good conversation. So my people go check this out. Those are the people that are going to start listening to your show. And when they hear you interview me and they say, how, hey, you know, Artie's a good conversationalist. He has great questions. He has, you know, a bunch of other shows. Let me, let me see who else he's talking to and what else, right? Yeah. Those yeah. are the people that are going to grow your audience. Now, yes, at some point, the let's say the personal connection could potentially run out. Who knows? But if, but meaning like if it was only just one guest, but you do the same thing next week and next week and next week, and each week you got a new supply of people coming to check out the guest, not you, right? But yeah. when they get there, that's when they discover you. 
And that's when they continue down your journey, your your customer journey of your podcast or whatever it is that you end up, you know, whatever your ultimate goal is, your North Star. Yeah. So all that said, if I was to ask you directly, should you be spending money on ads or should you be spending money on relationships? What would you answer? Relationships. Absolutely. Definitely. Absolutely. And that's why my company's one happy client, because uh, it, it's it's completely designed with the idea that you can take one person. You, let's let's put a baseline. You have to be good, like DJing. Like I still had to show up. I still had to play. All my relationships didn't matter if I sucked. Like I still had to actually right. So your product has to be good. Your service has to be good. We're taking that as a baseline. Yeah. Beyond that, when you establish relationships with your customers and even relationships with your prospects. Those are the things that are going to, you know, not only just start your business, but grow your business and exponentially grow your business time and again. And then at some point down the line, like I said, you're, you're, you're brick and mortar, you're going to a new city, you know, there's time and place for ads. Ads can accelerate this process because you can get more attention. But when we're talking about dollar for dollar, like, should I run ads? Listen, if you're starting a podcast and you got 50 grand, run some ads, Right. If you're starting a podcast out of your house and you're just trying to grow something from the ground, build relationships. Great advice. Great advice, Brian. Thank you. Um, Brian, that's all the questions I have for you today. I, it's been a very enlightening conversation. I very much enjoyed it. Um, before we wrap up, can you give listeners a way to reach you if they want to work with you or anything else you want to share? Yeah, you know, I think we kind of tapped into a lot here and I appreciate the conversation and you do ask good questions. So, you know, you. Um, there's that. So anyone who jumped in at the end, you know, listen to the whole thing and listen to the other shows. My website is onehappyclient.com. And that's my branding company. Uh, I have a couple of other things that I have my hands in. I'm an investor. I do invest in businesses. And, and that's a whole other animal, which, you know, maybe we can get to at another time. And all my social is at the Brian Orr. So it's T-H-E. B-R-I-A-N-O-R-R. -R. And that's pretty much it. That's me in a, in a two-hour nutshell. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Artie. I appreciate it, buddy. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If you enjoyed this episode and you're enjoying the podcast, I would love it if you left a five-star review on Spotify or Apple if you feel like I've earned it, or another platform that allows reviews and ratings. It also goes a long way if you share this episode with anyone that you feel might enjoy it. I also love interacting with listeners, so please follow me on social media and get in touch with me. On Instagram and TikTok, you can find me under Thoughtfully Mindless, and on Twitter, I am at TMConvos. Until next time.